Hey, I'm Dr. Karen Becker, and I'm so excited today because I have the one and only Dr. Richard Patton, animal nutritionist, joining me today to talk about all things pet nutrition. Now, if you don't know who Dr. Richard Patton is, um, it's a little bit shocking because he has been one of the, uh, not just pet food formulators, but he's been an animal food formulator for, gosh, Richard, dare I say, dare I say approaching 50 years? Yes. <laughs> which is an amazing way to spend your career helping animals eat better food. And I also believe that you have formulated uh, a whole, for not just dogs and cats, but I think uh, zoo animals, lots of wild carnivores for zoo diets. You have formulated, I believe, around the world. Tell us, for those of you that may not know your background, Tell us a little bit about your very colorful and quite insightful career as a animal nutritionist. Well, uh, uh, Karen, that's a gracious introduction. Thank you. Um, I have uh, been at this a long time, as you intimated, and uh, uh, probably I'm the uh, oldest surviving animal nutritionist consultant in captivity. Uh, it's... Uh, simply from showing up and doing my best uh, every day for, well, I've been a nutrition consultant for 40 years. And uh, I have worked in, uh, I think, 27 countries. And much of my tenure was helping zoos and, and, and making diets for zoo animals. Th this, this then led to uh, a perspective of what you might call comparative animal nutrition. And uh, these contrasts give you a lot of insight as you go along. So uh, one would hope that in, in, in a person with the experience such as myself, uh, somebody who has spent all these decades thinking and struggling about how to get it done, that, that I do have uh, uh, something to contribute. And uh, uh, we, we want to you know, continue. What we will all want to do is uh, what's best for the animal and the owner of the animal. And uh, th that's my ambition uh, when I get up every day. And Richard, when you, because you've been doing this so long, you have seen, I hate to call them nutritional hot topics, but honestly, you've seen these nutrition trends, these, um, when I say, crises, um, you have a, a pretty good, literally patent statement about nutrition not being a crisis, but you've seen these monumental, many actually, dozens of monumental nutritional issues come to the forefront of veterinary medicine over your 40-year career. Um, and talk to me a little bit about how you arrived at your kind of patented statement that nutrition is never a crisis because you actually have seen lots of, of nutritional problems come about in your time. How did you arrive at your conclusions? Yeah, it, it is kind of a, a perspective of mine of, uh, of longstanding that nutrition is never a crisis. It just slowly gets worse and worse until something else is a crisis. And then uh, veterinary medicine, uh, predominant, the predominant training is crisis-oriented. And so when this nutrition finally uh, breaks into a crisis, the profession, the veterinary profession, has the, the standard stimulus that they can react to. Um, 
the truth of the matter is that uh, an animal that presents with a, a crisis at the clinic may have been in uh, inadequate nutrition for months or years. And uh, it's because of the exquisite adaptability that evolution has built into everything that, that a wrong diet can seem to work for a while. Yeah. And I think that that's probably one of the, the trickiest things, even for veterinarians to understand. My nutrition training in veterinary school was minimal at best. That's gracious. Mi minimal nutrition training. So I don't, I don't believe veterinarians are trained to recognize nutritional disease in its, in, in its process. We don't look at nutrition as a contributing factor to many of the chronic degenerative diseases plaguing pets today. We're not looking at that. The other thing that I was not taught in vet school is that you can be obese and profoundly nutritionally deficient. So just over fat and undernourished is a common mammalian issue in North America. And you, you've highlighted that a lot in your writings and in your lecturing. Yeah, uh, the 900 pound gorilla in the room, uh, in, in you and I uh, are well aware of my rant here, and it's the excess soluble carbohydrate that's in the average pet diet, which, and the culprit is kibble. And uh, the, the point you made about, uh, you know, these, these uh, trends that come and go, indeed, I have seen a lot of. And um, like in human nutrition, there's these popularities that come and go. There's the Atkins diet, the South Beach diet, the keto diet. And uh, they're, they're all just variations of one, one theme. And it's lowering the soluble carbohydrate. It benefits anybody. And so back up and talk a little bit about um, a lot of people will say, you know, Dr. Becker, you're always bashing kibble. And it's, I, I'm sad because I don't want to bash anything on this earth. However, Kibble is a little bit like cereal for kids. It will sustain a body, but it doesn't necessarily nourish a, a body. So I don't want to, in essence, bash kibble, but the truth is it may not be providing for scavenging carnivores or omnivores even appropriate nutrition. You, um, you formulated some kibble in, in your lifetime, haven't you? Oh, quite. Yeah. Yeah. Um... I think, and it's all part of the perspective that one finally brings to the discussion. Uh, the, in the point you're, you're making, and I've alluded to earlier about adaptability, you know, a bag of potato chips and a Coke will get you to the next day just fine. But, but we all know that a lifetime of that diet is going to be shorter than it ought to be. And this is, again, because of this adaptability that, that lets you uh, – uh, feed a wrong diet and seem to be getting along okay. Yeah. But the excess soluble carb, uh, which is a, a, a failing of kibble, uh, it needs to be uh, addressed. And I, like you, I'm, it's not that I'm against kibble. It, it's, uh, if, and the kibble industry is getting better at lowering their carbohydrate. Yes. There was a day when, you know, there was the, the uh, as a, as a type, you might call it the old Roy um, uh, farm special. 
that was a 50% soluble carbohydrate. Well, these people, they're not stupid. They didn't get to be the behemoth industry they are by making wrong decisions. And they're aware of the, the, the fact that soluble carb is a discussion among professionals. And they're doing what they can to lower it. And I commend them for that. But there's still, uh, I mean, there's one out there now that says that they're 25 or 23% soluble carb. Well, they're fudging. If you do the math, they're closer to 30. But 30 is a long ways down from 50. They're moving in the right direction. And they will continue to move in the right direction. And um, the point is the primordial diet, the, the, uh, the wild world that, that was the, the, the uh, operating stage for our, the evolution of everything for, for billions of years, it had very little soluble carb. And uh, our whole problem is nature made it very hard to find soluble carbohydrate. Uh, and they adapted to that reality. But mankind made soluble carbide very easy to find. So today we come to this problem where we're all uh, consuming too many soluble carbs. And might I add, they taste delicious. So. <laughs> Soluble carbs are cheap, they're easy to find, um, they, they're addictive, they're highly addictive, and um, it's a great, like you said, it's a great way to get by because you have no, no mammals really argue eating them. They're delicious and addictive, so no one's arguing other than, from the nutritional standpoint, it, it's not ideal. It's not ideal for us, and it's not ideal certainly for uh, carnivorous cats and dogs. So here's my question to you, Richard. Do you, you were certainly formulating when the very first cases of DCM that were diagnosed in cats in the 80s, when we figured out that cats need supplemental taurine in meat-based form, that kitties are not making their own taurine. You are, you've been through this now like three times in a row. You've lived through the DCM meltdown. So this is uh, round three for you. You are a veteran expert when it comes to, you were around when it first broke and people were like, hmm, didn't know that was going to happen with cats. And so then we started supplementing taurine with, with feline diets. Now, here's my question. Supplementing taurine, one preformed amino acid, is a start at preventing, preventing cats from acutely dying of heart failure. But what about the fact that these diets are still probably amino other amino acid deficient, specifically maybe the sulfur amino acid deficient coming from meat? And so supplying one preformed amino acid doesn't necessarily make a poorly formulated low protein or protein deficient diet better. It's almost like putting a Band-Aid on a gushing wound, isn't it? I would concur. There is... There is uh... There is the, the, the kind of tendency uh, to uh, put a Band-Aid on the blister when what's really needed is you need to uh, change the pair of shoes. Uh, you're right. I've been there uh, uh, through uh, different iterations of this uh, discussion, beginning with the work at Davis back in the 70s where they first showed that cats <clears throat> had an issue with taurine. But we got to keep this in perspective. The, uh, uh, the cat can't make taurine, but in its primordial setting, it didn't need to. 
it was an exquisite hunter. It always had fresh meat. It always had adequate taurine. Now, the dog supposedly can make taurine. And, and we look at this and think, well, uh, the dog is evolutionarily advanced compared to the cat. Well, not necessarily so, because the dog was a poor, not the exquisite predator that the cat was. Uh, evolution um, presented the dog with a mutation to make taurine, and the dog ran with it. The dog uses it. But this was a necessity because the dog didn't get enough taurine uh, uh, as a predator. It, but you see, the taurine, uh, making your own taurine is at a cost. It uses cysteine. And the body has lots of other things to do with cysteine besides make taurine. And so it isn't a case of uh, one's way ahead of the other from an evolutionary advantage. It's just... Uh, the, this process of evolution going forward and things fitting in the niche as best they can. So we're back to the cat. The cat does not need taurine if it's on the right diet, if it's on its primordial diet. It's getting plenty of meat and plenty of taurine. And so what the people showed at Davis in the 70s, uh, Morris and Quentin Rogers may have been in on, um, <clears throat> is that if you take a cat off of its all-meat diet, and you start to give it grains, it gets into taurine deficiency, and you have to supplement. Well, Madison Avenue gets a hold of this, Big Gibble gets a hold of this, and today what we've got is uh, kind of like this finger pointing and name calling it in the marketplace where they're saying, uh, in essence, to, to the uh, consumer, oh, look, we have taurine, and they don't, we're better than them, buy us. When really the, the fact of the matter is, if you have to add taurine to have the diet be adequate, it wasn't a naturally balanced diet to begin with. Now, we come to the dog. And uh, I don't mean to monopolize the discussion. Beautiful. Uh, I jump in. But so uh, it seems this, this uh, uh, enlarged heart discussion seems to have descended from out of nowhere. And... Um, we're all kind of, uh, you know, doing the chicken little drill and running around saying the sky is falling. Um, if we go back and look carefully, this has probably been accumulating for a while. Yes. Uh, to to uh, add some perspective here, the CDC has reported 519 cases uh, over the past year and a half. Well, uh, we're, if we're talking enlarged heart, the problem in people is uh, very prevalent, and it would have been millions of cases. So we, we have to uh, uh, kind of ask ourselves, out of the 100, 110, 110 to, let's say, 120 million cared-for pets in the country, there's been 519 in the past year and a half with an enlarged heart. Let's, let's not get too uh, overblown about, about this problem. Let's gather as much information as we can and try and understand. Now, uh, I, I believe, Karen, uh, part, of, part of the thesis you, you say needs to be considered is, uh, in essence, an issue of protein quality. And I agree. Uh, the, this taurine is made from cysteine, and cysteine is part of a balanced diet. And if you are 
low in, in, in cysteine, you're going to be, you may well be in the dog, low in taurine because you don't have enough uh, spare parts to build the taurine. But uh, the, the other thing you have to uh, keep in mind here is that uh, I think uh, the world production of taurine every year is like 5,000 tons. Half of it is going to the pet industry. Yeah. And, uh, we have to, uh, on the one hand, be sure that the diet is properly balanced with regard to vitamins, minerals, protein, everything, amino acids, uh, essential amino acids to begin with. Then we have to go back and look at, well, is there adequate taurine? Is there adequate cysteine? Richard, what are your thoughts about um, that over the course of the last 20 years, many manufacturers are trying desperately to reduce the number of feed-grade synthetic vitamins and minerals in their food. So two things are happening. Manufacturers, thankfully, are going from some of the cheaper, poorer absorbable oxides uh, and moving to amino acid chelates. So they're improving the quality of synthetics going in in terms of bioavailability. But they're also working on just getting synthetics out of the formulas, which is notable and I think respectable. However, I think that there's a chance that uh, because AFCO feeding trials are, in my opinion, incredibly deficient. You know, six months of look at feeding an animal of food without measuring nutritional parameters in the bloodstream, I don't think is uh, an adequate judgment of a food that you could feed a lifetime. Uh, we'll talk about your opinions at AFCO feeding trials in a minute. But what are your thoughts about the fact that as companies try and eliminate synthetics from their food, there's a chance that we have not taken into consideration processing techniques and the fact that extrusion or heating these foods may also deplete cysteine and methionine oftentimes have to be refortified into the foods because the processing techniques alone are impacting amino acid quality, amino acid concentration, amino acid viability, absorption, digestion. What are your, so two questions. Number one, processing plays into uh, protein quality. But the raw materials already going into pet foods are not human-grade meat. So talk to me about quality of raw materials, processing techniques, and AFCO feeding trials. That's a lot. That's a big question. <laughs> I'm glad you're taking notes. <laughs> um, let me uh, put some uh, perspective to the discussion in this this regard, synthetic versus natural. Uh, I did a lot of work in the past with uh, vitamin E, uh, which is uh, one place where the, the uh, natural advocates have a, a, a very valid point that has been easily proven. Um, <clears throat> I shouldn't say easily proven, I should say well proven. The um, <clears throat> vitamin E, uh, as you have, the, I call it from the smokestack industry, it's available in eight isomers, all with some uh, amount of vitamin, vitamin E uh, potency. Nature deals in just one form. It, it is uh, the most potent uh, at contributing the uh, vitamin E activity that's needed in a diet. And we showed this work in black rhinos in captivity 
where we, we were able to uh, draw blood uh, from an ear vein while they were eating. And we fed natural E, then synthetic E, and then did it again, put them back on natural E, and then synthetic E. And what we saw was that when they were on the natural E, the kind that's in fresh forage, for example, or in the, a fresh kill animal, prey animal, um, when the rhinos were on this, their blood tires went way above normal. And when they were on the synthetic, it went way down. So as far as I'm concerned, this set up the discussion, the perspective that I always bring to a vitamin discussion. There is natural and there is synthetic, and natural, I think, is going to tend to always be better. And the other part of this discussion that, that I think everybody needs to keep in mind, you know, uh, if the AFCO requirements for vitamins and minerals are so sacred in Stockbrosant, you need to explain something to me. It's called the coyote and the dingo and um, the feral dog and the mountain lion and the tiger. All these carnivores in the wild that have thrived for uh, millions of years without ever seeing the first nanogram of store-bought vitamin. And so uh, the, the, this, this nutrition game is easily uh, uh, dismissed by some as kind of straightforward, but it's, it's a three-layer chess game. Yeah. Because, you know, if, if you read not AFCO, but NRC, which informs AFCO, and when they have a discussion on a vitamin, just about every discussion ends with the closing sentence. But we suspect the gut microflora make all the vitamin the animal needs. And so we then get into this, uh, this interrelationship between the excess soluble carbohydrates promoting the wrong gut microflora that don't make the B vitamins. And if you simply put the animal on a balanced diet, low in soluble carbohydrate, the proper gut microflora predominates, and the vitamins that are needed are, are manufactured. And so what are your thoughts? So I could not agree more, but what do you do when people can't maybe make a fresh meat-based diet and they're left purchasing a shelf-stable processed diet that has, has sit on the shelf for a year, a year and probably will sit on a, in a warehouse for six months. And then um, those nutrients have to be included because the diet without them would be deficient. There's no way to skirt that. You're left, you're left having to supply some synthetics for people who can't make, make homemade diets or purchase homemade diets that are using whole foods for their sources of nutrients. There's no way to skirt that. Yeah, in a perfect world, every every animal, every wild animal as well as pet would be on the diet that you and I recommend. But but uh, the reality of the world is that there there, as I simplify it in my discussion, it's a three legged stool. You've got uh, exercise, which everybody gets. Uh, <clears throat> exercise is good. It's sometimes equipped that it's exercise is the best diet then then, then there's the economy and there's convenience and the, the typical pet owner when they when they're buying making a purchase decision it's those three things and 
um, as long as they're, they're emphasizing economy and convenience, we're never going to get them to discontinue kibble. Uh, but uh, if, as you, you say, they, they do want to uh, do better, and, but they still have these constraints, my advice is always, look, feed raw, a raw balanced diet, to the extent that your budget will afford it. And you've moved in the right direction. Clearly, people with little dogs and cats, the sticker shock is less of an issue. But um, if you got four Rottweilers uh, in the house with you, why feeding a, a freeze-dried diet is, is going to break the bank. But you bring up a really important point, Richard, that out of the 14 meals that you're going to serve your massive Great Dane, if you can replace one or two of those, two out of the 14 meals, if they can be fresh meat-based diet, you are doing, you are serving the body well. Likewise, if you can, you know, if you're going to trim, if you're making a salad and you're trimming off the ends of the carrots and you're trimming your meats for your family, you supplying human grade scraps, fresh food scraps for the animals in your house is a great addition. Every bite of something unprocessed you're putting in is better than nothing. So I think that that's an important point to make. But back to the fact that 96% of people who love animals are feeding highly processed diets. I feel thankful that many of these manufacturers are trying to reduce the number of synthetic vitamins and minerals in their food. I think that that's awesome. I think what happened is they discounted the processing techniques playing in to how extrusion impacts microbiome, how extrusion impacts amino acid uh, digestibility, how, pro, how extrusion impacts um, uh, digestion and absorption of certain nutrients. So I, I think that that may be playing more so into amino acid deficiency than, than we may realize. Now, no one studied that because there again, feeding trials were not required to study it. So give me your thoughts on feeding a trial diet for six months and six out of eight dogs have to remain alive, but they're not testing any parameters, no blood values of nutrients, no remaining nutrients in the bag. What are you, how confident are you, Dr. Patton, in AFCO's gold standard of feeding trials in providing reassurance to pet parents that indeed you can feel confident feeding the same food that passed a feeding trial from the time a dog is born to the time it dies and you should have no concerns about long-term nutritional intake. Are you convinced that that really is a gold standard? Let me uh, begin first by saying that uh, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, I love to attack AFCO for what they're not getting right in my opinion. But, um, they are, they are well-intentioned, capable professionals, and their ambitions are the same as ours. Uh, it, it's, it's by an open, calm dialogue that we can get things off a of dead center. Uh, regarding the AFCO uh, approach to things, you know, they, they say, you got to have uh, AFCO recommendations if you want our blessing. Or uh, produce a feeding trial. Uh, and shows that your food works. Well, um, I think your points are valid, very well taken. Uh, is uh, how, how, how much does uh, their feeding trial really uh, define a diet uh, 
the way it should be as adequate for uh, pet nutrition. Well, my, and I, I concur, uh, my, um, my arguments here uh, go even further, or I have a, a, an additional argument. Let's say you want AFCO approval of all life stages and you're willing to do the feeding trials. Well, <clears throat> this produces something like 100 puppies for no other reason than being a lab rat for your efficacy. And I think this is highly irresponsible and I want no part of it. I, I am not going to, none of my clients are doing AFCO feeding trials of any kind. And, and uh, um, uh, for all life stages. They want to do maintenance, you know, where you can take an existing, uh, already alive uh, animals uh, with their place in the world, and you want to put them in one place and feed them for six months. We have more insight on that diet than if we didn't do that trial. Your point, I think, must be then taken up. But do we have enough information to say, oh, you're good to go forevermore because we fed it for six months? No, you do not. Well, most importantly, Richard, we're not measuring anything pertaining to nutrition. We kept an animal alive for six months with a food. That's what we proved. With an echo feeding trial, the animals maintained a pulse and heartbeat. The blood <laughs> parameters that we, that we measure, albumin, CBC, that is not a measurement of any specific nutrient. That's not a measurement of antioxidant status. That's not a measurement of how long that food will be viable for once it's open. We're not really measuring, we're not measuring microbiome. We're not measuring digestion. We're not measuring absorption. We're not measuring anything other than sustenance for six months. And I think that that may be part of the reason that we're in the situation we are in with some of these emerging disease nutrition-related diseases is that we're using the wrong barometer of how nutritious a food could be over a lifetime because we're not necessarily measuring those parameters. And I think that that's partly why we're in this trick bag with DCM and potentially a whole host of other diseases. Um, so what is your thoughts um, pertaining to uh, my three, three, three questions. I had a feeding trial question and then I had a synthetics question. What are your, what are your thoughts about, um, when, when you're formulating for your own clients, I know that you are like me and that your desire is to formulate with the least amount of additions when it comes to synthetics. Talk to me a little bit about the fact that things like selenium, it can be really hard to find food, unless you're going to use Brazil nuts, it's really hard to find food-based sources of even vitamin, vitamin E. It's really hard not using synthetics. There are some nutrients like zinc that are just hard to come by, vitamin E that are just hard to come by. What do formulators do because your options are food or a synthetic? Those are our two options. The synthetic vitamin E, uh, I mean, the people that, that make it uh, think they have adequate proof that it's fully bioavailable as much as any other as the natural vitamin E. Um, well, after years of battling, we got them to admit, well, it's not, it's not as good as natural uh, vitamin E, but it costs much less, so just feed more of ours. So they, they take a negative and turn it into a positive for them. They sell more. Uh, there is the, the, the uh, uh, 
the continuing kind of piling on of these different issues. For example, AFCO mandates 100 parts per million zinc. Well, um, I have to really shake my head at this one. Having made diets for animals of all kinds all over the world for decades, that 100 parts per million is four times the need of zinc of any creature I've ever known in my entire uh, time at, at, at uh, applying my, my best thinking to this game. And so I think that uh, for, for uh, a State Department of Agriculture to be legally allowed to red tag an entire production uh, of a pet food because it has 80 parts per million zinc instead of 100, this is a complete loss of perspective. Yeah. And um, somewhere between the fact that nature's got it right, everybody thrives in the wild, and on the one hand over on the other extreme is everyone's buying kibble from the grocery store. We have to find this happy medium. And that's what I, that's what I feel your questions are, is where do we land uh, to kind of, at the moment, going forward in, in all this turmoil and discussion, where do we land with our advice yep. to help as many people as possible, as many pets as we can, and harm as few? Yes, that is. That is my question, because we know, I am like you, am I thankful that I live in a country that has some nutritional parameters that we can look at and review? I am, I'm very thankful. Do I think that those parameters set forth from AFCO are not necessarily entirely accurate or even healthy long-term for the fact that like we don't have, um, for some of those nutrients, there's no maximum levels. So there's a lot of minerals that can be found in foods. And if that is fed over time, what are the long-term consequences of feeding really high levels of some minerals? You know, that, that may be a detriment. So are you in favor, Richard, of maybe, or do you believe time is coming that we will be as professionals willing to consider the idea of revamping what we consider optimal nutritional requirements for dogs and cats? Do you think that that's coming? I'll answer that this way. Uh, with all due respect, I think what we're, we're headed towards unequivocally is that the entire AFCO approach is going to become passe, kind of like a ghost ship, that uh, uh, AFCO can say what they want and mandate what they want and, and play their word games about we don't enforce, we let the state departments of agriculture enforce. Well, this is a passing of the buck, and, it, and people are going to get fed up with it. They're going to say, why do I have to have all these added ingredients to meet your requirements? When over here, there's a diet with seven ingredients that has been in the market for 15, 20 years. Uh, this is the feedback I want. What works? What do people keep buying? Um, the other perspective on this entire discussion, you have gotten this question many times. Invariably, I get it after a, a talk, and there, it's Q&A, and, and someone will say, our 14-year-old lab was just diagnosed with cancer. What should we be feeding? Well, of course, th this is a heartbreaking question, and you deal with it as best you can. And what I never say to that pet owner at the time, or the group, but always try and get around to is, the time to be asking that question was 14 years ago. 
you know, let's get them weaned. Uh, mother's milk gets launched and then let's feed them correctly. And don't worry about when they're puppies, this is a short time. They're gonna be, they're gonna be puppies for a year, uh, relatively speaking. And they're gonna be family members for 15 or 18. And so uh, let's get them fed right. Um, and I keep kind of bouncing back to the broad perspective here, and I don't mean to be dodging your specifics, so maybe you want to come back at me with some of these questions. No, it was a really good discussion. So, Richard, some of you, when you think about all that you've learned from all of the perspectives that you've been able to acquire over the last 40 years, what are, what are, what are some of the most important things in terms of your takeaways as an animal nutritionist, you've talked about the soluble carbohydrate issue being a big one. Um, talk to me a little bit about uh, some of the other, you know, if you are going to pass the torch to a mm. mentoring animal nutritionist, what are some of the other glaring issues in your opinion that we need to be thinking about that that we aren't the soluble carbohydrate issue has just come about for all of us front and center in the last 10 years when we're like hmm we're calculating the carbs and they're with especially with these grain-free diets they're actually becoming higher we have higher levels of carbs and grain-free so we're all kind of having this discussion about hmm this is a lot of soluble carbohydrate are there other things that you believe we should be thinking about looking at discussing that we aren't richard you know i don't uh i think that the excess soluble carbohydrate is so big a problem uh all the others uh they can wait uh, I'll, I'll attack them when we get this this 900 pound gorilla out of the room yeah. uh, i mean to worry about the level of zinc i think it, it is like arranging the, the deck furniture on the titanic there, there's this much larger concern that, that I, I'm completely preoccupied with. Now, more to the point of your question, what, what or a, to use your own words, which I so love, what do I want the world to know? <laughs> yep. Oh, and I think maybe it's encapsulated in uh, th this, uh, this observation that I, I'm always so aware of, you know, despite formal training uh, as an animal nutritionist, just about everything I know of any real value was taught to me by animals and the owners of animals. And I would advise the pet owner to be sure and listen to their pet. Uh, when when they, they have, a, a, you know, a bowel movement and you're looking at their feces, you want it to be a cigar that you, you can kick across a shag rug. Yep. And, um, if they're squirting puddles, this isn't necessarily bad, but it's a red flag. Uh -oh. and, and so oh, you want to you let the, be sure and listen to what your pet is telling you. And if, if they're eating uh, feces, I will ask, is it the horse feces or is it their own? There's a big difference. Most creatures will eat feces of other species, but um, if they're eating their own, this is a different message. And are they eating grass? 
Well, is it just so that they can vomit up for a moment? Okay, that's one thing. But are, are they eating grass on a more consistent basis? So be sure and uh, see what the pet is doing and hear what they're doing and listen. Yep, good advice. Okay, back up and tell me, over the last 40 years, have you switched how you feed your own dogs? Or would you say you're basically feeding about the same style you were feeding 40 years ago? With your own pet? Questionably, I, uh, you know, when I was uh, earlier on in my career, I drank the Kool-Aid. Um, and, but it, it's, it's uh, and I think we all do this with the best of intentions. And uh, the thing that has to happen is you must be open-minded and humble. That you may not have all the information you need. You may not be making the best decision. And to stay open-minded and recognize that the truth can come from anywhere, uh, including, uh, God help us, a veterinarian. Yeah, so, it's true. So, so and you, you want to be uh, willing to connect the dots. Um, for example, uh, you know, a, a big perspective is if, back again on my rant about soluble carbohydrate and, and the fact that there's none in nature, well, thinking people should be asking themselves, well, if, you know, uh, enlarged hearts were not a problem in dogs until just recently, and we've been doing something in the past uh, 50 years, uh, diet-wise, that, that is out of step with uh, the evolved biochemical machinery. And, and I keep coming back to the same answer. All this starch and sugar is not doing anybody any good. Yep, you're spot on. You're spot on. So, Richard, I have to ask, at what point did you decide to start feeding a fresh meat diet? to your dogs. Was that early on or did you, would you say that as your evolution as a nutritionist, you uh, started feeding kibble and then you started adding in fresh meat recently? Because you're one of the few nutritionists that advocate uh, biologically appropriate foods. You, you, you're one of the very few that recognize that uh, dogs and cats do best eating a very low carb meat-based diet. I believe that uh, probably, uh, you know, God and St. Peter were most exasperated with me from the very beginning that I wouldn't seem to learn my lessons. Because one of the very first things I did was I was part of a group that made a diet for uh, tigers in captivity, and it was wildly successful. World record, six cubs born in captivity. As a matter of fact, that same pair of parents went on to set another world record on that diet, 36 cubs born in captivity. And we also feeding an all-natural diet. Uh, that same team, uh, at the very beginning of my career, uh, was responsible for the first golden eagle chick born and raised in captivity. It was an all-natural diet. So from the beginning, the seeds were planted in my thinking. Yeah. But then I went on to work for Big Kibble and, and uh, you know, the dietary management of disease uh, from the veterinary uh, perspective, and all along I'm uh, accumulating this insight. So, yeah, you get to the point where uh, there was a day when I would have said uh, natural's not good, 
And if you had told me the day would come, would be here one day when I would say, it's a better way to go. I had a cultural liar back then. Sure. But one of the things that, that I think is indispensable here is that our, we must stay open-minded and, and be willing to learn uh, new insights as they, as they present and not, not uh, let all the street chatter and dogma keep us from seeing the real trends. And I, uh, not just myself, Richard, but I think that the entire fresh feeding community, one of the reasons that you are so well loved and uh, really we're so thankful for everything you're doing is that you are one of the few nutritionists that have been able to evolve in your professional path to recognize these truths. And we appreciate you for doing that because it's the voice of common sense, but it also um, is the voice of reason when it comes to what makes sense for why we would pick a less processed diet for our pets. Sadly, there's just not a lot of nutrition out there supporting our desire to feed um, less processed foods. You're, you're one of the few, but it came about because of your desire to see a bigger picture and your knowledge base evolved through your career as your education did. So I, I really appreciate all that you're doing for all of us looking to have a bigger, broader conversation than what most nutritionists are willing to have. So we appreciate your, your open-mindedness throughout your entire career. Well, Karen, you're kind to say these things. Thank you. Um, but, but the approach, uh, I've not abandoned science at any point. Uh, I think that the, the, uh, the really confident investigator uh, will not dismiss uh, as a, a counterpoint to, to his. What he'll say is, show me your data. And when I look back at the data th that I've accumulated over 40 years, I am going to take my position uh, today. And I'm not going to say to somebody, you're wrong, I'm right. I'm going to say to them, show me your data, because I think mine's better. I think that soluble carbs are causing us problems, uh, along with other things, and I want that fixed. Yeah. Do you, do you see, Richard, because you formulated a lot of kibble in your life, do you see that this is a viable possibility with the cost of meat meals being what they are? Do you think that consumer demand, that consumer knowledge, that consumer push is enough to, which is going to drive the cost of pet food way, way up? If they're going to use less soluble carbs and more meat, more meat meals, that's going to change the price of pet food. Do you think companies... We'll move in that direction, really? The fastest growing segment in the pet food community is freeze-dried raw. <clears throat> and uh, I, I like what this is saying, but it's still uh, a tiny sliver uh, of uh, an absolutely behemoth industry. And um, we're, uh, we're just gonna have to keep, uh, you know, uh, playing our tune and making converts as best we can when we can. Um, yeah. I think as as the pets move more from a, you know being chained to a to a hovel in the backyard to being a member of the family, uh, people are going to tend to forsake their economy first approach, uh, nourishing their their family members, and the 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 the, uh, the willingness to feed proper nutrition is going to uh, gain traction and sticker shock will be less of an issue.
Yeah. And I agree with you. I, I do think that over time price will come down uh, as, as more and more companies per, enter the marketplace, it will drive costs down. I'm right there with you. Well, as always, Richard, it's a pleasure to get your insights and your thoughts. I appreciate all that you uh, have done and all that you continue to do for the fresh food industry. Uh, I like your veteran insights on some of these topics. Um, and most importantly, I appreciate you being so willing to talk to all of us about your thoughts and ideas. Of course, glad to help. Thank you. Thanks.